Welcome to Delta Waterfowl's Voice of the Duck Hunter podcast. I'm your host, Joel Bryce, Vice President of Waterfowl and Hunter Recruitment Programs. Today is our third podcast episode. In the last two episodes, we covered habitat conservation and duck production. Today, we're going to talk about waterfowl research and education. In particular, Delta Waterfowl's storied history of waterfowl research, plus we'll cover our 2020 research roster. If if you guys are really interested in the the nuts and bolts of of how waterfowl work the way they do, you're going to really enjoy today's podcast. My guests on the the podcast today are Delta Waterfowl science team, Dr. Frank Rohr and Dr. Chris Nikolai. Hey, guys. Hey, Joel. Good morning. Good morning. All right. So you're really going to get a, <clears throat> a balanced perspective from, from this podcast. Frank has been, you spent your entire academic and professional career in some association with Delta. Yeah. And Chris, um, you were a Delta technician back in 1996, but otherwise you've spent your, your career elsewhere, particularly with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, right? Yep. All right. Yep. So... I'm going to give these guys an opportunity to introduce themselves and give you learn about their their science background and credentials. Frank, can, you know you've been on this podcast the last two times, so can you share with the with the listener just kind of your academic and waterfall background? Sure. Um, I grew up in Maryland. Uh, grew up on the Chesapeake Bay. Loved to duck hunt, and then by chance I went to school at Kansas State and. Uh, and at Kansas State, I met a guy that was working at Delta as a student. And so I learned about Delta when I was a freshman and, and said, wow, this is a place for me. And so uh, a couple of years later, I started working there as an undergraduate technician and uh, did my master's and Ph.D. as a Delta student. So uh, that was a long time ago. So I've been with Delta since the mid-'70s. I had a brief period when I went off and was independent as a faculty member at University of Maryland for a few years. And then uh, Delta approached me right around 1990 to come back and be the scientific director. And, hmm. and I did that and been associated with Delta pretty much ever since. I was a faculty member at Louisiana State University for 21 years. And while I was there, I'd spend the summers up on the prairies at Delta working with the graduate students on various research projects. Mm-hmm running the research program and then in the winter I would teach at LSU so it's cool. a good life and then I moved yeah. up here six years ago and have been full-time with Delta since uh, since cool. then so you know pretty much every researcher has some area of expertise that they you know a particular passion or focus how about you Frank what would you well, I started out working on waterfowl ecology, just nesting ecology, much mm-hmm. like some of the early Delta students, you know, Hope Bomb and Souls. Um, but then I've moved into sort of more management-oriented work. How do we get, how do we produce more ducks, or how do we do things that are good for ducks or duck hunters? So mm-hmm. very much more management-focused than I used to be. Cool. So, yeah, Frank is, is yeah. president and chief science officer. Chris, waterfowl scientist is the title that you hold, right? Yep. Yep. And you joined us back this past January. Yep. January so, 2020. So as the new guy, tell us, Frank gave us his background, where he's from on, on prior podcasts. Why don't you share with the listener, you know, your upbringing, where you're from, but then do the same thing Frank did. Let us know about, you know, your academic background. Yeah. Yeah. So I went to high school in Minnesota, moved quite a bit before that. But uh, I had a friend in elementary school that his family was a big group of duck hunters. And my family duck hunted a little bit, but it was pretty much over by the time I came around. 
But this neighbor kid, uh, you know, he'd come back telling me these stories of the wood ducks and the gadwalls and the widgeons and all these things and run over there to go see what they look like and got a bird book. And yeah, I was pretty much addicted to ducks and geese by the time I was eight, at least interested in them, I should say. And that's all I talked about. All my art projects at school were about ducks. And um, yeah, went through high school, had a really neat wildlife biology class and then went up to college in northeast Minnesota at a community college. And uh, I think I mentioned it on the web page that uh, it was like the third week. I was there as an aviation major. And the third week I was there, I saw a classroom just full of duck wings. Hmm. And uh, yeah, I walked back to the teacher the next day, and it's like, you know, what, what's this all about? You know? And he's like, oh, that's wildlife management. I'm like, can I sign up? And he's like, yeah. So the next day I started. And, reorganized them all for him because a couple of them were labeled wrong had a lot of fun and uh yeah finished a two-year degree there thinking that would get me a job and then now you got to go to school longer so i went over to bemidji in northwest minnesota finished that up uh met the wildlife research guys there worked for them over four years and they helped uh, get me a position working in Alaska to get a chance to work on spectacled eiders. So I went up there $3 a day, round trip air ticket, you know, yeah. ready to go for five months. And that was pretty neat. Um, went back up there two more years trying to develop a master's project, stuff that would get funded, funding would fall apart. The week field season started and finally met my advisor, uh, Jim Sedinger, who, uh, was a professor up in Fairbanks at the time. He's like, I'll pick you up. So started a master's project with Jim. And similar to Frank, I was interested in, you know, the esoteric stuff. You know, since I was a little kid raising birds and all that, I always wondered how um, eggs in the clutch all hatch synchronously. You know, we know they don't lay them all in one big dump like turtles do. They lay them one at a, one at a time, but yet they hatch more synchronous than you'd ever imagined. So got to do a neat experiment where we switched hundreds of nests around so that just the first laid egg was in this nest and the fourth laid egg was in this nest and removed some of these hypotheses people had developed over the years. And that got me really excited. And my advisor asked me to stick around for a PhD and we shook on it and about a month later, he shows up and he's like, hey guys, I just took a new job down in Reno. It's like, oh my gosh, you know, the desert, 100 degrees, everything like that. Okay, so down I went and yeah, I spent 18 years living in Reno and finished up the PhD, got involved with a bunch of harvest questions uh, with pintails and scop, developed a wood duck project that we'll talk about at the end here that you know, I've had going 18 years and I think we finished three three graduate students now. We're going to be starting a fourth here pretty soon, and uh, yeah, help the state redesign their breeding waterfowl surveys and their banding program. And after about three years of sweating, we realized we really liked it out there and had a really good time. But um, yeah, the opportunity here with with Delta is something I couldn't pass up. It's awesome. <clears throat> well, I'm. Slightly intimidated today. I'm the only doctor not here, so <laughs> doctor, doctor. Um, but anyway, that's good. Really appreciate that. So, as you guys can tell, Delta's science 
uh, department is in good hands with, with Frank and Chris. So we'll jump in back into the subject of today. I, I find it kind of interesting. Today's Delta waterfowl, really large compared to, you know, back in 1911 when we started. Today we have the four pillars of habitat conservation, duck production, hunter three, and what's the other pillar? Oh, maybe it's some research and education. Yeah, research yeah. and education. <laughs> there you go. So, but back in the day, 1911, 1938, pick your year, we had one pillar, and that was waterfowl research. So, Frank, can you give us a, a Delta history crash course, maybe how we started, how our, our research department, our research work came to be, but then also spend some time talking about what that, what that means to the waterfowl community and the waterfowl world. Yeah. So... You, you mentioned Delta started in 1911 back on the East Coast, and that was at a time when wildlife was falling apart in North America. And so we started, interestingly, as an advocacy group to, uh, you know, try and educate people and get people focused on the plight of wildlife. Um, but in the 1930s, something interesting happened. A, a guy named James Ford Bell, the founder of Kellogg's, uh, General Mills, Kellogg's Corn Flakes, um, came to Delta. He came there earlier, but he watched you know, the, the drought of the 30s approach and, and ducks decline, and he really wanted to do something. He had this cool philosophy about putting back. He was a hunter um, and, and had come to Manitoba as a, you know, as a displaced Minnesota hunter because ducks had already declined in Minnesota. And he came up and he really wanted to do something. And, uh, and he started a hatchery, didn't really know what to do. But, but then he got wise and he, he sought counsel. And he sought the best counsel available at the time, uh, a famous wildlifer named Aldo Leopold. Leopold came up and, and said, look, here's the deal. We've worked on waterfowl in the winter, but we know nothing about their breeding ecology. And so he convinced Bell to fund research. And that's when Delta started on the prairies here. And, uh, and, so, and not only did Leopold convince Bell of this, but, but he had a student at the time, uh, uh, Dr. Hopebaum, uh, H. Albert Hopebaum, and Al Hopebaum became the first scientific director of Delta. And so, you know, I still live in the shadow. Those are, those are major shoes to fill, and I don't know if I've ever accomplished that. But uh, Hopebaum came to Delta and ran the science program for decades. And basically, Hopebaum recognized that we know nothing about breeding waterfowl. You know, there have been pioneers of waterfowl biology, you know, Frederick Lincoln doing all the refuge stuff and, and mm -hmm. working on disease, but nobody looked at breeding ducks. And Leopold said, look, you got to understand the entire ecology. And, and, uh, and we now know that the breeding season sets waterfowl populations from wood ducks flying by to mallards to pintails. It's the breeding grounds that drive things. And so Leopold had it right. He didn't even know he had it right, but he just knew he needed to study waterfowl. And so that's been Delta's history. We started as a research organization. And when I came to Kansas State, I'd never heard of Delta. There was no membership. There were no Delta stickers on vehicles. Um, it, was, it was unknown unless you were a dyed-in-the-wool waterfowl person. Then you knew of Delta. Um, so I was lucky to get to know Delta early. Um, but that's been our history. And, and that's kind of a cool history because, you know, I, I'm still proud of Delta that Everything we do is driven by science, from Hunter yeah. 3 to, to <clears throat> what we're advocating about, hunting regulations we'll talk about, 
to uh, how we manage on the prairies is driven by great science. So I really like that that part of Delta, that, that we were first a science organization and that's our lens through which we view things. Um, so so that's Delta's history. Now there, there are hundreds of students and many of them, you know, all right, I'm old as, <laughs> almost as God. So <laughs> I knew a lot of those students. Many of those students are retiring. I worked for students when I was an undergraduate that are mostly retired now. But, but there are hundreds of students that have guided our knowledge of waterfowl biology and hence how we manage in so many ways on the prairies. So, so that's a bit of Delta history. So. Well, that's, that's amazing. Yeah. Hey, just to give everybody perspective, if you hear a wood duck in the background or, or really loud pair of Canada geese. It's the Missouri River behind us again here, so it's a, a great, great setting to have a discussion. Jumping over to Chris, so Frank obviously shared, you know, he's been involved with Delta for a very long time. Chris, I, I know you were a technician for Delta back in 1996, but your perspective on Delta, I'll call it an outsider. You know, you've, you've been with the organization five months. So from your perspective, what was what was the reputation or the viewpoint you had of Delta as an outsider? Yeah, I mean, back when I worked for Delta in '96, you know, I'd probably been teching, you know, being a, a technician on on projects with graduate students and professionals for maybe four years at that point. And you know, your goal was to be the best guy that could find the most nests or catch the most ducks or, you know, I worked 14 hours today longer than anybody. But that's, that was about all it was. It was this competition of just how hard of a worker you were. And um, the main thing I remember working at Delta in 96, there's still that component, but it was the first time I was exposed to peers, you know, people the same age as you, reading papers. Yeah, I'd never been in, exposed to that before at all. You know, it was always this competition, just working hard and being able to talk papers and people your same age doing it seemed like it was the right thing to do now rather than a professor telling you, you know, read this, read this, and he never did. Well, he rarely did. So that was really neat from Delta. And then, you know, I was only here for maybe two and a half months and went up to the Arctic right away. And, you know, most of the rest, well, actually the rest of my career up till this job has been out in the Pacific Flyway where, as Frank mentioned, you know, Delta is pretty quiet even in the Mississippi and Central and Atlantic flyways, but out west, you know, there isn't really even a history out there. And, you know, there's still a lot of waterfowl professors out there um, that do the same things, but they always talked about deltas, you know. They do some neat stuff, you know. We talked to these guys that were from there. So it was always this um, bar set, you know, that people looked up to, and uh, which is pretty exciting, you know, and you start meeting all the Delta students at conferences and you see them giving pretty good talks and really neat science and you know even when I was out west Delta funded uh, that same wood duck project I mentioned for three years so you know we're able to work together and again it's just a neat opportunity to be able to come back and be part of this organization. Yeah no that's great. Yeah. Uh, the research and the science is definitely the backbone of, of everything at Delta. It's the fiber that runs through every program, every initiative. Um, you know, we do have to have sound science to, to form opinion and, and uh, take action. Yep. So appreciate that, guys. So, <clears throat> so Frank, 
um, as we talked, the majority of the 20th century, Delta was just a, a quiet, I'll say little, research organization. And probably around, I'm just going to say the year 2000, Delta started to, to change. And I think some gave Delta some flack for that. You know, there's the romance behind Delta being this research organization right. and just do research. Don't do programming. Don't do advocacy. Right. In your opinion, Frank, why did Delta change from research and expand into the four pillars we talked about earlier? Well, one of the cool things about being here so long is I've lived all of this. So, mm -hmm. um, And you're exactly right. When I first started at Delta, all we did was research. I remember coming to Delta in the 70s, and, and it was cool because there were all these students, and that's what we did. As Chris said, we talked about science papers, and, and you had mm -hmm. this great interaction. We haven't lost that. That's that's still present. But I would say the first major change we made was we, we've we always been a hunting organization. We were based on hunting in 1911. We were certainly when James Ford Bell you know, started funding work on the prairies, the notion was about hunting and putting ducks back. But we actually formally, you know, incorporated that into our mission statement, uh, mm -hmm. you know, fairly late, like 25 yeah. years ago. And we said, look, we're a hunting organization. We're all about advocating for hunters. Because as you may know, you know this obviously, that hunters don't really have a great voice. Nobody's actually speaking out for hunters. Now, state game agencies obviously focus on hunting. Sure. And, but, but we needed a broader sort of science-based advocacy group thinking about hunting. And, uh, and so we wanted to be in that position. And we wanted to advocate for the right things, for mm -hmm. hunters or for ducks. I, I don't know a single hunter that would want to hunt ducks to the point where we cause them harm. And so that's not the issue. The issue is how do you reach the right balance? Right. Can we over-harvest ducks? An age-old question that we've been working on for you know, 50, 100 years. Um, so we wanted, to, we wanted to advocate for the right thing, the right balance, and we wanted to advocate for hunters. And we also had seen enough, done enough research that we saw things happening on the prairies that just didn't make sense. Mm -hmm. And so we wanted to advocate for the right things. And so the first transition for Delta was to advocate for doing the right sort of management. But in some cases, the right sort of management, um, let's face it, it isn't politically correct. Right. If you go out and reduce predators, we have all these new predators on the prairies, we have a super abundance of predators because we provide supplemental food and have changed the habitat. And if we want to go out and manage predators, it's not politically correct to go out and kill raccoons and skunks, even though raccoons are exotics, and skunks are overabundant. And so there's reluctance to do management that made sense. And there's inertia to do management that just has proven it doesn't work. Or if it does work, it's so damn expensive that it's foolhardy. So mm -hmm. so we saw that happening and, and we started to shift into, okay, if, if management agencies won't listen to us, we'll just do this management. And and we can do that even though we're a relatively mm -hmm. small organization. So, so trapping and hen houses are the two things that we've talked about on prior videos. We know they're super effective and yet, you know, they're not widely embraced. So, so we're going to start doing those, and, and that's a shift we've made. And then the final shift, as you know, is, is we just looked at the abysmal decline of duck hunters and said, somebody's got to do something on a national level. Right. 
and uh, you know, and I think our Hunter Three program is a fabulous thing. I'd like it to be much bigger, but but worrying about the fate of hunters and advocating for hunters. John Devney's work recently with the Fish and Wildlife Service to get much more area on national wildlife refuges opened up. You know, that's fabulous yeah. stuff. So. Advocacy on public policy is hugely important for us and, and can achieve great ends, you know, grow and, and Alice and, and working wetlands. So so the advocacy part clearly works. The management clearly works. So I, I'm just really proud of all the things Delta's doing. So. It's been a good transition. It, it yeah. definitely feels complete, right? Yeah. All the way yeah. from the duck hunter to the science. Right. to the. So I think if someone is not very familiar with our with our how we do our research i think there's a there's a, a point to to emphasize so we don't do staff research right not very much yeah, no. yeah not very, very much little. it's right. it's students that do the research i want to kick this one over to you chris what so you know we come up with an idea or or someone asks us to partner or contribute to their research project but it's a student in almost all cases that that conducts that research. What are the benefits, Chris? And maybe there's some limitations too that I could think of, but what are the benefits in your mind of a student doing research at a, at a separate university rather than Delta staff doing their own research? Yeah, well, I think it, you know, one, you get a fresh student that has a new perspective on things. Sometimes they'll bring some new fresh ideas um, along with their advisor as well, you know. So we don't it's almost like hiring an independent contractor to answer the question we want. So it's not like we're driving our results at all. You know, so that really helps separate those two processes. Um, you know, they, they're cheaper than a full-time employee, you know, so you can keep them around longer to really peel back those layers sometimes, you know. Um, and, yeah, you can expand upon it and you know turn it over to the next student as well as as those layers open up and you know you start learning about the inside uh, drawbacks uh, it, it can take a little longer you know sometimes uh you know you don't you don't develop the the tools as fast as you'd like you know sometimes you needed to need to develop some new estimator or some new train of thought some new comparison that no one's peeled back before so I think the biggest thing is just broadening who's involved you know more brains thinking about the one question is is always better than you know one or two people or three just driving forward in addition to that independence let me chime in with with something you mentioned being out on the Pacific Coast you know you have a student uh, that worked for Delta did his PhD as a Delta student, Bruce Duggar out at Oregon State University. Mm-hmm. And, and he's a real leader in the field these days. Now he's an older guy like me, but but you have these guys. We got a, a young guy down at Louisiana State University, Kevin Ringelman. We helped fund his PhD and, and, and he's now sending a second generation of students. But in addition to students being, I mean, they just work themselves to the bone. They're cheap. And, mm-hmm. and that's good. You know, we like to do things inexpensively when we can. But you train these students, and then they then they go out in the world. And, and flip over to the east side, Ken Richkus was one of my graduate students, was a Delta student, worked on pintails out in Saskatchewan. And he's now the head of, of migratory birds and, and running the program. You know, folks through DU, th- throughout the university system, throughout the state systems as well, um, 
that that's another huge benefit of working with students is that then the students go out and and run waterfowl management from states federal agencies ducks unlimited um, universities so i think that's a huge benefit of working with students absolutely yeah so, if we can if we yeah. can help develop uh, their viewpoints they can self-replicate right, right? So yeah we're yeah, working take on the, delta, the next generation yeah, yeah take the delta story out with them yeah. and like yeah. like frank said too I and mean, even one of my phd students the one that delta funded in the early 2010s you know is now a professor at stevens point yeah awesome that's where i went to school so <clears throat> we're kind of moving down the funnel here and, and in a little bit we're going to go over each one of our research projects in in just you know very high level kind of getting the punchline but so i think building to that so you have basic and applied right um so the modern day delta is leaning way towards the applied frank can you talk about the value of basic the transition to applied or or what's your perspective on that well clearly the value of basic research i mean you look at delta's history we had a long period where we did mostly basic research because we needed to learn about duck ecology mm -hmm. and i think we're there we 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 know more about waterfowl than any other group of birds in the world um we also have a ton of questions that we need to answer right now that are important management questions. Questions about how many pintails should we be shooting? Questions about how do we most effectively use $100 up here on the prairies to produce more ducks or protect habitat? And so we've focused on those questions just because we see them as so important. Mm -hmm. We don't want to waste people's money and we know that we have a goal. We want to help the population of ducks and, and so uh, we need to know how to do that most efficiently. When I was a student, I saw this transition because I came to Delta in, in the 70s and students were allowed the luxury of choosing their own projects. Well, I had read about these clutch size determinations, just like Chris was working on hatching synchrony. How do, mm -hmm. how do those duck eggs that by the end of laying are, are different by days and yet they hatch over a period of eight hours. You know, those are interesting questions. Hmm. Not an important management question. We can't turn that into how to produce more ducks. But we made a shift away from that to, to we would give students an idea and then they would go and develop it. And it's typically an idea about uh, management efficiency. So we'll talk about, you know, a project we're doing in Northeast North Dakota right now. You know, we gave the student the idea, and he loves it. He's loving the project. So, so doing things that are managed, you know, apply to management just make more sense right at the moment. We really have a bunch of management questions we need to deal with. So. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess, you know, the source of our funds are, are from waterfowl hunters. And so right. I guess I personally kind of feel an obligation to, to make sure that, that it doesn't just scratch our our curiosity itch but it you know it yep. contributes back to their exactly. future so yeah. it's i guess right. that is that that uh that powerful conscience of of being the duck hunters organization right yeah so okay so now we're going to jump into our 2020 research roster we have 16 projects listed this year so again just to kind of keep it to keep it moving along i'm going to read the title or a, a short version of the title and then i'm going to ask you guys to to pick it up and lead in though I want you to talk about why should a duck hunter why should a Delta waterfowl member care about that research project all right, right? so I think if we can pass that test we've done our job 
today. So let's see, flipping the page here. We're going to start off with a canvasback research project up in Manitoba. Canvasback nest success, is that you Frank? Yep. So, uh, so this project is really about applying what we've learned about dabbling ducks and, and trapping. How do we produce more ducks efficiently? And we know that nest success is the big driver. We believe that to be the case for canvasbacks. And so how do we get more canvasbacks to hatch? And we have no method out there that any waterfowl biologist can advocate for. We presume that trapping would be equally efficient for diving ducks. And these divers nest in the cattails, so they nest over water. But it's the same set of predators by and large. And so we wanted to do a study where we instituted trapping and then looked at diving duck nest success. But the whole goal is to have more nests hatch, produce more ducklings, have a larger canvasback population. And what's interesting is we've done, what, over a dozen studies of dabbling ducks and trapping there is relatively easy. In all of them, we improve nest success. But we've had a tougher time with canvasbacks and, and diving ducks. Canvasbacks, redheads, ringnecks, some scop nest over water, ruddy ducks nest over water, some mallards have started nesting over water. And we haven't dramatically improved nest success, and we're, we're still trying to figure it out. So, so the project is ongoing. There are students in Manitoba right now looking for diving duck nests, and we're monitoring success on trapped and non-trapped blocks, which is our standard experimental approach. So, but the goal is produce more canvas mix, flat out. I think everybody can support that one. So we're going to actually jump down the list. I see canvasbacks on a couple other projects. We have canvasback habitat modeling. Right. What's that one, Frank? Okay. So in, in essence, this one is a flip around. And now we're not focused on the canvasbacks. We're focused on the habitat. We know we've talked about this in prior uh, videos and podcasts. We need to protect wetlands and we need to improve nest success, mm -hmm. right? This one's about protecting wetlands. Because right now we know a lot about canvasbacks. We've studied them for years at Delta, Hope Bomb, Mike Anderson, you name it. And we know a little bit about what habitats they like, but we don't know a ton. And in this canvas, the first canvasback project, we've gained all this information. We've done pair counts, nest success. We've done brood counts. And so we have these great measures of reproductive output. And what we need to do is link those up over huge areas. Mm -hmm. Like when we work on something, we work on it big scale. So <laughs> hundreds of square miles we've looked at. And so we can now look at the habitat and link it to this population data and say, hey, here's the very best habitat. This combination of small wetlands and big wetlands, this in the upland. We don't know what that is right now, but a student that did his master's on the canvasback project is now going to take all of those data huge data set and match it up to GIS habitat and this is one where we're working with Ducks Unlimited because they have this great GIS capability and we're going to figure out where should we protect habitat because we're trying to buy easements and protect habitat but we're nowhere on that in Canada and so we really ought to focus on the best of the best. Let's not protect medium grade habitat, let's protect the very best. And we don't know what the best is so that's what this project is about. That's using beautiful. conservation yeah. dollars efficiently. I think it's a great example of, Chris was saying how you can conduct a research project, you learn, you learn, you take it so far, and then another student 
picks up the ball right. and keeps running, right. maybe in a direction you didn't think it was going to go. Yep. And so this one is a spin-off of, of a lot of great work we've done on canvasback. Right. So the last one, canvasback redhead integrated population models. Right. And so we have a fairly good understanding of, uh, not a fairly good, we have an excellent understanding of mallard population biology and blueing teal and wood ducks. We really don't have that kind of understanding of canvasbacks. For one, we just don't have as good a data. We don't band very many of them, so it's hard to get survival rates and harvest rates. But by using modern methods, we're going to combine essentially every bit of data on canvasbacks and redheads and put it into a population model to better understand. Are canvasbacks like other ducks and we should be completely focused on the breeding grounds? Or could canvasback winter survival be a little more important? So that's the sort of question. And this is a cool one because this one we kind of wanted the answer to sooner. So we're going not to a graduate student, but to a professor and a postdoc so that they can, partly because the analyses are fairly sophisticated and partly because we want the answer sooner. So, so this is one with Dave Coons, a former Delta student and postdoc, crunching all this impressive data that we've gathered and everybody's gathered on canvas specs and redheads. That's great. That's a good one. So let's see, I'm going to break up the voice here a little bit, jump to the bottom. Large-scale Pacific Flyway Radio Project. Chris, is that one you're going to talk about? Yeah, that's one that uh, I'm carrying over from my old position with some of our partners out in the Pacific Flyway, uh, primarily driven by Cliff Feldheim, who's a uh, past Delta student as well. And uh, yeah, a bunch of USGS guys and California Waterfowl Association, where I think in the last five years now, they're up to right around 1,200 of these new GSM radios on pretty much everything, uh, you know, greater scop to blue-winged teal, which is a very rare bird in the Pacific Flyway. Mallards, shovelers, everything, uh, most of the geese, uh, tules, Pacific white fronts, snows, ross. It's pretty exciting, and, you know, marking birds out west, and, you know, one of their... Their core questions is, even out west in the Pacific Flyway, the goose populations are smaller than the mid-continent, but they're more dense. There's, you know, it's probably an order of magnitude less geese, but there's still so many of them, and the wetland habitats in the Intermountain West have been drained and just decimated. I and mean, California probably has less than 5% of their original wetlands remaining, most of which is duck clubs and state and federal refuges and so there's a lot of concern there of too many geese especially in the last decade uh, out competing all the puddle ducks so they figured they'd get a project going marking everybody and see how you know the core populations move and shift with each other both in space and time and and, and figure things out and with these new radios that we work that we're using on a couple other of these projects the technologies just phenomenal for now. These GSM radios, are, these are the satellite transmitting radios which collect super accurate data. I mean, Chris can go out and find a, he did that last week, a, a transmitter that was put on in, in Texas and it just goes right to it or pretty much right to it. Yeah, uh, walked you know, right found to a it. dead white-fronted goose or, or the, the transmitter. So super accurate locations transmitted to satellites so, so you get you know, fabulous data. This is the biggest, you know, satellite study in the world. And, and uh, this is driven by a guy that, that 
you know, is funding great waterfowl research, partly through Delta. So mm -hmm. Great project. Yeah, yeah, these radios are more real-time, so we can actually link satellite imagery and on-the-ground habitat assessments right to the birds' behaviors and locations. See, this is too easy. It is. <laughs> it's not I'm fair. I'm getting bigger, and I'm yeah. watching lots of birds. I yeah. spent three years the old-fashioned way. You had to be within a mile of In that In the old radio. days, yeah, we had these yeah. antennas, and you had to track them around and fly around to find them and drive thousands of miles and mm -hmm. now the data just comes to you it's fabulous yeah I Chris, mean, you should have to yeah. work harder it's not <laughs> well, when you talk about the old school stuff i mean we frank i know has been involved with behavioral mm -hmm. stuff too yeah. where you're watching birds and you're recording how often it's feeding or preening or sleeping yeah. Yeah. these radios actually can record how it moves in three dimensions and you know a, a grubbing goose does a certain signature a sleeping goose does a different one so let alone we don't have to do triangulation to find out where they are. <laughs> learn, yeah. Yeah, our behavioral <laughs> observations now are also coming on a computer. All right. So hotspot trapping to improve dabbler production right here in North Dakota. Frank, you want to cover that one? I can, sure. Um, <laughs> we, uh, we know that trapping works. In recent years, we've tried a new approach. And, and to be honest, trapping really works for dabbling ducks. But we found that, that where it works the best is in low grass environments where nest success is abysmally low. And so in those environments you have 100 square miles where, where there might be five total sections of grass. Little chunks here, quarter section here. And we've tried a new approach to trapping where we, instead of trying to trap all 100 square miles, we say, Go and trap those very best fields, because that's where 80% of the ducks are going to nest. Do we know 80%? No. But we know you get huge concentrations of ducks in those fields, and if we just protect those fields, we probably are really improving nest success. And we know we've greatly improved nest success. We've hit, you know, 60, 70% some mm -hmm. of those fields. But we really want to evaluate it. So this is all about return on investment. We want to make sure trapping dollars are used as effectively as possible to produce as many ducks as we can. And we think that this hotspot trapping is the way to go. So we're really doing a great evaluation of that compared to our traditional trapping where we trap township-sized blocks, and we trap all of it. So that's what the project is. And, and what's really cool about it, Chris and I have done a bunch of work on that this year, is, is not only do we need to get nest success, and that's simple. You just find a bunch of nests and monitor them. But we need to get nest density. And that's really, that sounds simple. Well, you search a field, and if there are two nests in an acre, you got two nests per acre. But the trick is you never know how many nests you miss, and we miss an awful lot. Mm -hmm. The hen's not there. She doesn't flush for some reason. Um, so there are all sorts of reasons we miss nests. And Chris and I have worked a lot with the graduate student and, and a former Delta student that's you know now one of the gurus of, of biology over at, at University of Minnesota, Todd Arnold. And we've come up with this great study where we're going to really estimate the nest density and much better than anybody else has ever done in the waterfowl world. So, so that's what the hotspot trapping is okay. about. Evaluating trapping efficiency and, and seeing if this hotspot is that much more efficient than our old method. Gotcha, and that's Matt Davis working on that that's project. That's Matt Davis, yeah. Okay, all right, raccoon satellite telemetry. Okay, so 
Yeah, this is a project, you know, coming to Delta, dealing with predators, this is one of the projects that got me really excited, you know, where we're studying the predator. You know, so they're putting out a bunch of satellite transmitters on on raccoons up in Canada. Uh, unfortunately, you know, we had to back off of this project for other reasons with, uh, you know, COVID-19 this year. But uh, one year's been accomplished and, you know, we'll probably pick this one up in, in future years. But with this, you know, reading the reports on this one uh, gets me really excited is it's looking at where the raccoons are using, you know, both natural habitats and then also you know, abandoned farmsteads and tree rows and, you know, these things that we've put on the landscape that weren't here before raccoons showed up, you know, yeah. were they tied together? You know, like, it, it's interesting being back here in North Dakota, the trees are a lot bigger than I remember 20 years ago. You know, I remember coming here just thinking I was in the wide open tundra. And, uh, you know, you wonder how much this anthropomorphic you know human caused change has driven some of these raccoon or other predator populations so yeah i find this one really exciting i can't wait to to get involved with this one when we resume hopefully next year this was also a <clears throat> part of the web of the canvasback predator management research project where that's right you know we're going to gain fabulous information about habitat use but we're, we're trying to learn that so we can be more effective trappers mm -hmm. and figure out how to reduce the raccoon population so we can have more exactly. canvas packs. Right. Yeah. Well, that trail cam yeah. technology yeah. allowed us to see oh, yeah. a subset of what, what predators yeah. are, are destroying yeah. these canvas back nests yeah. and raccoon jumped to the top of the list, right? Yeah, yeah. and we had, we had expected raccoons to be there, but we found an awful lot of predators that weren't supposed to eat canvas back eggs. Mm. And, you know, foxes and coyotes that didn't like to get their feet wet well they seem to be quite happy to do it to get a canvas back egg so yeah so a canvas back yeah. nest is over water, over water yeah you know, right. sometimes what yeah. one two you know two anywhere feet? from eight inches to three feet of water they basically take the cattail and weave it down so that it'll hold the weight of the canvas back and the eggs so but there's water underneath it so yeah so raccoons being semi-aquatic yeah. yeah we expected yeah. that raccoons and mink but okay the impact of ravens and, and coots and Canada geese and muskrats and everything else, we, we were a little surprised by that. So, and a striped yeah. skunk on yeah. camera. <laughs> Over Amazing. the water, I think yeah. that one's interesting. Everyone needs a bath every now and yeah. then. That's right. Counting broods using drones. This is a cool technology. We've, we've had several graduate students working on this. And, and basically, we're using a drone with this thermal camera. So basically it's a heat detecting camera. And uh, we started out in, on dabbling ducks. We've, we've worked on canvasbacks with this thing, but, but where the drone and the thermal camera are probably going to be most revolutionary to waterfowl biology is counting broods. Because we've had a terrible time. We've been doing brood counts since hell, way before Chris and I were born. And we know that they're, they're worthless because most broods try and get to places they can't be seen. Mm -hmm. And so you don't see most broods. And so when we do a brood count, we might be counting anywhere from 15 to 30% of the broods. Well, that's pretty worthless data. Yeah. With the drone, we think we can detect the great majority of broods. So you fly over wetlands, and even though they might have a whole bunch of vegetation that the brood is hiding in, from above, these ducklings that don't have contour feathers and great insulation, they just shine. They actually show up better than the hen does that's with, with them. And so we've now discovered that we use the thermal camera to find a heat source, and then we switch to a visual camera. So you have two cameras on one drone, and you zoom down and see, oh yeah, that's a brood that's 
10 gadwall ducklings. And so we're gonna be able to do brood counts. Why does that matter? Because for a lot of the work we do, we do a ton of work just to get it production. Well, broods are the best measure of production. Right. So let's evaluate management, whether it's planting grass or putting up hen houses or, or you know, doing predator management by counting broods. And let's get super efficient at this. And, and I think that's what the drone brood counts are doing. We have a student now working in, in the Dakotas on dabbling ducks. We've done a lot of work on diving ducks. And in, in both cases, the drone is really proven effective on brood counts. Kind of jumping the gun, but it's, a, it's at least a twofold detection rate, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's it's much better than observers. Even when we do fancy double observer brood counts, we're still missing most of the broods. So the drone is far more efficient, and it's far faster. So, so and you don't have yeah. to have an army of technicians with one drone technician. You can get out and do a lot of habitat. Yeah, so, see, that's the amazing yeah. part. So you know, yeah. out cable chain dragging, finding duck nests to see how many of them hatch. That's a summer long project. Effort. Yeah. Right, you and know, what and you really want to know is how many broods did you produce? Yeah. You can just yeah. jump to that, yeah. take you a few right. weeks, yeah. that, that would be pretty exciting. Yeah. yeah, I think it's a neat example too, you know, like we were talking before, just peeling the layers of the onion back, coming with more questions, you know, we're learning that what you'd think would be really simple isn't. Right. You know, so there's all these nuisance parameters, mainly detection probability, you know, did you really see everything out there? And yeah, a lot of these projects have that common theme is to fine tune so that we're closer to the correct answer. We'll probably yeah. never have yeah. the perfect answer, yeah. but we can sure get a lot closer than, than what we've been in the past. That's how science moves forward. Right. Awesome. Okay, ringneck ducks. We have a ringneck duck project going on. The ringneck project started in Georgia and Florida, and what we were doing was putting transmitters on ringnecks to see where do these ringnecks breed? So, so what's the origin of, of those birds in Georgia and Florida? And uh, and it turned out we hit it, the timing was perfect because the Atlantic flyway population of mallards was, has been declining. And, uh, and so in the Atlantic flyway, they decided to sort of unhitch their hunting regulations from mallards and hitch them to a bunch of species. So it's ringnecks, wood ducks, green wings, and golden eyes. But ringnecks were probably the least understood of those because we don't band any of them. We didn't know where they were coming from. It was presumed that ringnecks came from the east. So we put these GSM transmitters on ringnecks. We don't put them on ringnecks. We actually cut them open and put the, ring, the transmitter internal. Hmm. And what we found is that all of the ringnecks in, in Georgia and Florida were heading to the west, to the western boreal forest, sort of north of here and west of here. Uh, Northern Saskatchewan, Manitoba, Alberta. We even had one go to the, the British Columbia. So. so what we've discovered is that the, the birds in the Southern Atlantic Flyway are mostly coming from the West. And, and that was hugely important because if and the Atlantic Flyway is gonna set hunting regulations on, based partly on ringnecks, they shouldn't just be counting the ringnecks in gotcha. Newfoundland and Quebec. You know, they should be counting ringnecks all throughout. And interestingly, it's the ringnecks in the West that have really been expanding. Little known fact, ringnecks, if you look at ducks since we've been counting them, starting in the 50s, ringnecks are the one that show the most steady positive increase. They've just been constantly increasing. And, uh, and you know, we've had other ducks, shovelers, you know, cruise along and then they, you know, take this huge spike in gadwall. But ringnecks have been constantly increasing 
partly because they're spreading west and doing great in the west. And, and it's a cool duck. One of the things we need to study is things that are successful, not just things that are declining, yeah. which is what we tend to spend our money on. So, so great project, timed very well to help inform hunting regulations in the east, uh, as well as inform us about where ringnecks go to breed. So. It's good to mix in some positivity now yeah. and again, right? <laughs> okay, lower Mississippi flyway dabbler tracking. Okay, so this is a project we got going on with the University of Arkansas. And uh, yeah, three puddle duck species, mallards, American widgeon, and green wing teal. And using these backpack GSMs, so we've been putting out these little 10 gram radios. Um, you know, similar to all these movement studies, you know, like the ringnecks, and we we're talking with those western radios as well, is just getting some linkages between breeding and, and wintering habitats. You know, do some birds from these areas tend to go here and vice versa? So we can kind of link up that full annual cycle, you know, which is really important for the, for the widgeons and the teal in particular. We've got a pretty good handle historically for mallards already. But, you know, there's a lot of questions lately about, you know, how far south mallards are going in the winter and are they hitting the hot corn club, uh, you know, hunting area or uh, hunting clubs, you know, and getting drawn into them or are they just sucked into the refuges and not coming out during the day to be available to harvest? So there's a whole ton of questions that we can associate with these radios. You know, just simple, what time of the day are they making these movements? But then also what time of the year are they making these movements? You know, are they delaying, you know, are, are they calendar ducks? You know, do they just always migrate on the 10th of April? They gotta be there or are they following that snow line? You know, it lets us, or ice line, whatever, it lets us learn a lot more about how they progress in migration, both coming down in the fall but also returning in the spring when they're getting ready for nesting season. So, I mean, I, I, people eat these projects up just because it's, you want to know where the ducks are, where they're not. Right. Are you going to see them? Are you not going to see them? What would be the, the, the biggest attraction to a duck hunter outside well, of just curiosity? there's been a ton of duck hunters that think the ducks have all shifted west or they're all on refuges or, you know, there are a ton of questions we're going to answer about where ducks are in the winter and, and how they're moving, how does disturbance affect them, how does weather affect them. So these transmitters just give you so much information. You know, we can look at where do widgeon go to breed that, that are in the Mississippi flyway. So all sorts of questions about migration. But I would say the biggest driver for this is really understanding duck movements in the in the fall and winter during the hunting season. And, and what's driving ducks? Is it hunting? Is it is it? You know, food availability. Is it refuges? You know, you know, what is it that that is driving? How does weather yeah. drive ducks? So all sorts of questions that hunters really want to know the answers to. These transmitters can give us this. Right. And this like you were talking data. earlier about, you know, work you've done with radios and you know the old school VHF radios doing triangulation. And if you got two locations a day, you're you're getting your paycheck for sure. You yeah. Know? Now, I mean, each one of these radios, if we tune them right with the right weather where the solar panel can recharge we can get a hundred locations per day Jeez, it's pretty awesome you know yeah. that that's yeah. exciting simply because you know the last five to ten years been a lot of questions out there in the duck hunting community 
you know, as the flyway change, they're not migrating right. as far right. south. And We're going to be able to answer a lot of those questions that's for cool. some key dabblers. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. So t- stay tuned for that one. Yeah. So we're, we came into this career field because we're curious about birds and animals, but people are also, and many will say, even more important, right? Um, so working wetlands, that's more of a human dimensions project. So who wants to talk about working wetlands? Working wetlands is, is a delta concept about, you know, we have, a, we have nice wetland protection. In the states, we've protected nearly a third of the wetlands in the Dakotas, for instance, with perpetual easements. But that means two-thirds are unprotected. Now, they're protected by uh, swamp buster and, and agricultural policy, but we're still seeing a lot of drainage, and particularly of the most valuable wetlands, these tiny wetlands, small wetlands that are, you know, are the backbone of, of uh, pear production. You know, When pears are looking for wetlands, they love these small wetlands in the spring the most. So. And those are the ones that are easiest to drain. They're in the farmer's way, you know, when you've got a little tenth of an acre wetland and he's pulling an, an 80 foot cedar he really doesn't want to have to go around that thing and waste diesel so we can understand why farmers want to drain them and so we want to provide an incentive and that's what working wetlands is and that was one of delta's great successes is working with other groups john devney has been able to get working wetlands built into the farm bill um, we also want to understand how do farmers react to this? And so we're doing a bunch of research through the University of, uh, uh, or North Dakota State University um, to look at farmer perceptions of working wetlands and how do you make it even more attractive to farmers, uh, you know, without a whole lot more money? And, and how, do, how do farmers react to it? Because farmers have this view that, you know, we're in conflict with them. Mm-hmm. And yet, you know, 90% of the ducks in North Dakota are raised on private farmlands. So we have to be able to work with the farmers and make programs that work for the farmers and work for ducks. And, and you know, I see working wetlands as that sort of project. I think that's the strength in, in any habitat uh, or duck production program out there, is that if, you, if it's viewed as something you do to the farmer, yeah. you're going to... You're going to hit resistance. It's just human nature. But if you do it with the farmer, you consult and develop. And and I I love that one. And uh, hats off to the work done there. So we're going to kind of lump three of them together. Pintail harvest and survival is one. Has pintail production declined is the other. And pintail carrying capacity. So pintail harvest and survival is that one? Well... Let me set the stage, and then we'll let Chris talk about harvest and survival because he's, you know, an expert in that field. Um, pintails are at, at remarkably high levels and yet low levels at the same time. So we have what between two and three million pintails in the last few years, roughly hovering around around three, you know, dropping down to two point six at times, and that's great. Uh, you know, that's more pintails than we have an awful lot of ducks where we shoot six of them per day but pintail regulations are at you know one duck per day and you're seeing thousands of them if you're in california or louisiana or texas and so you're very frustrated and they're uh, you know very desirable species uh, for hunters and so we view pintail regulations as we need to take a look at pintail regulations and and so we obviously don't want to over-harvest pintails, but we don't want to miss the opportunity to harvest two or three if, if the population will allow that. 
Now, when I say pintail numbers are low, that's relative to, you know, prior years in the 70s when we were counting pintails, they were, you know, between five and six million. And so, you know, they're low relative to that. They're high relative to other numbers. We've never had 2.6 million canvasbacks ever, any time. You know, even if we counted each one of them three times, we haven't had that many. So, you know, canvasbacks are at much lower numbers. Redheads are at much lower numbers. And so, um, could we harvest more pintails? That's really what drives all of this. And so, to answer that question, we need to look at a whole variety of things. And so, one of them is survival rates and harvest rates. Yeah. Crystal. Yeah, and luckily, know. pintails are probably, they've got to be in the top five or six uh, top species that have been banded. So, there's been a lot of data, Good data. Yeah. Over, over the years. And, you know, it's, it's really neat that several papers have come out in the last 10, 15 years analyzing these long-term data sets. You know, it takes a long time to crank these out. And uh, at the same time, we've gotten a lot of these new advances in analytical techniques. You know, computer speeds have gone through the roof and I mean, it just ends exponential every year. And so we can do things that we couldn't do even 10 years ago, or if you did, you had to go steal some, you know, supercomputer to make it done. But now we can do it on our desktops. And yeah, we've uh, got a postdoc that uh, just finished up in, in Reno, uh, analyzing long-term banding data sets in, in several puddle duck species, including pintails, but also blue-winged teal, just as a, another species to provide a check, you know. We know blue wings have been going through the roof, so they're a really good one to study what, what they're doing right. But with the pintails, um, you know, they're able to estimate survival. You're also able to estimate population size, and then you can use those population sizes that are estimated for the boys and the girls, and you can turn that into a sex ratio. And look at a bunch of other neat stuff. I and mean, another one, take that sex ratio and then compare it to uh, the proportion of juveniles in the fall flight, you know, or wing bee envelopes. And it really, it, it, it gets some neat messages. Uh, one that I've, I've paid attention to is, you know, we've always called for sex-specific regs just to save hens, you know, dead hens don't shoot eggs. And I, I've never really bought into that one a whole lot before from the data that we've had. But all of a sudden, this uh, postdoc showing a linkage between low sex ratios when there's too few girls and way too many boys, it actually influences recruitment. So it's like, okay, maybe we do have too many males that are pestering the, the daylights out of these hens. Instead of these three bird flights, we're getting seven and 15 bird flights, you know, where there's one hen. And she's just burning up all her resources, you know, so she doesn't have enough to invest into eggs or into incubation. And, you know, so it's, it's kind of a neat twist on maybe sex-specific regs are valid, but for a reason we would have never come up with before. Again, so, a different layer of that onion. Yeah. One of the things we want to get to is we, everybody's familiar with mallard regulations where you have the opportunity to shoot more males than females. And that helps mallard populations because it, it evens out the sex ratio. We have, uh, we have this great skew on the breeding grounds where females die and males don't by and large. Females sit on eggs, fox jumps on the, on the nest, guess who dies? It's mom. Right. And so 
you know, in, in a recent study, we found basically 25% mortality for hen mallards in the summer and less than 1% for males. Males are so just, just don't die. So we have this huge skew and sex ratio that gets caused on the breeding grounds. We need to unskew it in the winter. And so what Delta would like to propose if we get the right, you know, sets of data and it looks feasible is, hey, let's shoot three pintails, three males. You can only shoot one female. Ah. So we can be still super conservative with hen harvest. Most hunters believe that if we shoot a bunch of ducks, that means survival rate for ducks goes down. Well, that logically makes sense, but it doesn't in a sense because there's this weird thing called density dependence that, that the ducks compensate. So if you shoot a bunch of ducks, you may have taken the worst pot set of ducks out of the population and the rest survived better. Yep, the ones that would have died of natural causes anyways. And so, you know, what we've looked at with all these sophisticated analysis, everyone we've done for ducks and certainly for pintails says that harvest rate the number we kill is unrelated to survival, and particularly for pintails because our harvest rates are so absurdly low nowadays. So, so we're doing that analysis, the sex ratio analysis. We're doing other sorts of studies. I'll, I'll preempt you. You're going to talk yeah, about no, a couple other. Yeah. So, we have one where we're looking at has production declined, and it clearly has declined. You can look at age ratios and see that. In the 70s, when we had 5 million pintails, that was because they were producing lots of young. And now they're not. And we've actually, you know, documented that. We have, we have uh, some great scientists working on that. So we're looking at documenting declines in production. We know that's why there are fewer pintails now. It's not a survival issue. It's a production issue. And we've gone so far as to look at the habitat on the prairies. So that's the habitat and carrying capacity stuff. And we're finding out that we've done two dreadful things on the prairies. Not dreadful, but, but we've drained wetlands. That's dreadful. Dreadful if you're... Right. If you, okay. If you love waterfowl. But the other thing we've done is we've gone to no-till agriculture. And what we find is that pintails will nest in stubble. And so in the old days, we used to grow wheat, cut it, and leave the... And, and in the fall, we would go in and till the stubble mm -hmm. so we were ready to plant in the spring. We found out that by leaving the stubble, you, you capture snow and moisture and you, so you grow a better crop next spring. So you leave the stubble and you plant into the stubble you know, in May. Okay. But the problem is pintails come back in April and see the stubble and say, that's nesting habitat and they nest out there. And they have terrible nest success due to predators, but they re-nest, they go back in the stubble and if they happen to avoid the predator, John Deere is super efficient and covers <laughs> every square in inch yeah. of the field. And so we lose the nest. So that's another problem for pintails, particularly for pintails. Mallards? Mallards don't view wheat stubble as nesting habitat. That's just too sparse. So, so this is a real pintail problem. So, Does a pintail prefer the, the sparse? They actually prefer cover? sparser vegetation. So if, when we go nest searching in North Dakota and we have a really thick field, we'll find pintails in the, in the more sparse parts of the field, in the, in okay. the shorter grass. Okay. So, and yeah. keep in mind, pintails are a big tundra breeder too. You know, they're out just laying on on tundra with really short grass. grass. Yeah. yeah, it really doesn't look yeah. too yeah. different from a stubble field when yeah. you cross your eyes a little bit. <laughs> All right, so we got three three left. Nevada wood ducks. Okay. That's a crisp well, project for sure. Yeah. So yeah, I've brought this up a couple times. This is a project I started uh, right about when I 
started my PhD, but it's uh, a really neat, really unique study in which we can band almost everybody. So a lot of these biases we were talking about, you know, sometimes hunters just shoot the dumb birds anyways. Dumb birds are usually easier to, to band as well. Um, but, you know, you get into a situation where you keep catching almost everybody, we can start really hitting into and eventually catching these high quality individuals to guarantee they're in our sample. You know, if we just go out, we're gonna ban the first 100 mallards we're gonna get, you're kind of catching the first time. You have a trap bias. The mm -hmm. stupid yeah. mallards go in the trap, the smart ones stand back. And then and those are the ones we're in. looking for hunter reports from. So this study's pretty neat where we've got a probably the most intense duck project I'm aware of. I mean, some of the eider projects might surpass it, but it, it's we're, we're just on them. I've been marking them with a plastic tarsal band as well, so we don't necessarily have to recapture them to read the little numbers in their metal band, but we can read their band at you know, 200 feet with a spotting scope and tell who's alive, um, you know, long time afterwards. Sometimes you get birds, you'll catch, they're like a raven. You'll catch them once, you can't catch them again, but we read his band and we know he's alive and it'll actually bump our survival rates up closer to truth. You know, we didn't know that we were off so far. Um, but it's a neat little system. I don't know how long we'll carry it on. It's a cheap project to do. Um, we did just get some money externally to, to look at Mercury levels, which is actually kind of neat. I mean, it's it's a double-edged sword with hunters. I and mean, we've got, um, similar to walleyes that this boat in the background's catching, you know, we have heavy or heavy metal concerns in some places in North America, in San Francisco Bay, I think Long Island, Lake St. Clair, Great Salt Lake, have uh, consumption advisories on waterfowl, and waterfowl move. You know, a bird that's in Utah today from these radios might be in California 36 hours later with these heavy metal contaminants. One of the coolest parts of Chris's study, he didn't mention them. <laughs> well, surprises. It's such a closed system where he's working that he could also manipulate hunting. Yeah. Okay, so, so we've often looked at survival rates versus harvest rates. Mm -hmm. and, and we've rarely found much of a relationship. Okay, but what we really want to do is experimentally manipulate the system because experiments are the way to go in science. And so you want to either have very high harvest or no harvest. Chris was able to do that with this marked population. Yeah, I think it's and, the first and, time we've experimentally done it in yeah. waterfowl. We've done it with ptarmigans yeah. and pigeons. And so really cool quail. study, you know, you can shoot seven wood ducks or you can shoot no wood ducks. And then we can look at the annual survival rates from these Mark harvest for the population, birds. local and, population response. And, and he finds nothing. Yeah, yeah we yeah. found it was totally, this is the so, PhD cool experimental student. study to look at harvest rates. So. Yeah. Which yeah. is difficult with waterfowl. Like you oh, said, a totally. captive. Well, rabbit. what was so, nice is yeah. it's, a, it's a very small wetland system in western Nevada, and it's only one county, and not a lot of people cared about yeah. it. So yeah. we were able to, yeah. you know, we went through the right hoops and everything, but it didn't cause a whole flyway yeah. Shakedown. Yeah, much easier right. to do. Yep. So, just yep. to emphasize, they're not captive wood ducks. Oh, no. It's oh, no. that. No. It's a unique study system. We've yeah. referred to it as uh, studying ducks in a fishbowl. They just don't yeah. migrate very often. Yeah. Okay. And That's when you do experiments, you love to have yeah. a closed system, a closed system yeah. where you can do a tweak, just one tweak. You don't awesome. have to deal with the whole world. So, yeah, yeah it's a really neat system. We'll see if we keep it going for unique questions like that. 
This one, kind of a hot button topic, Atlantic Flyway Mallards, stable isotopes. Right, we mentioned earlier that, that the Atlantic Flyway is, is having a tough time because mallards have been gradually declining. And, you know, the data sets just don't match up. We've seen a declining population, we've seen no change in, in survival rates, and no change in production, and so it's a little weird. We need better data. And one of the data streams that we can use is, is, uh, is a new technique, relatively new technique called stable isotopes. So um, you may know that, that there are different forms of carbon. So you can have carbon that has you know, the normal number of neutrons and protons, but you can have carbon that has a few extra neutrons. And so it, it has a slightly different signature molecularly. And so, and what's interesting is that varies with latitude and longitude. Spatially, so, so yeah, yeah, you can make maps of this stuff. Yeah. Is and based so, on what they eat or just where they're located? Yep, it's based on what they eat. Okay. And you use feathers, and we know that ducks grow their feathers in the summer. They molt their wing feathers, so we take wing feathers. And so we know that this was a reflection of the breeding site. Okay. So we have a, a collaborator out, out in the East Coast at, at State University in New York, SUNY. Um, and, uh, and, and Dr. Schumer is collecting wing feathers, right, from mm -hmm. hunter-shot ducks up and down the Atlantic Flyway and then bringing them back to the lab and digesting the wing feathers and looking at, at signatures, and he's finding something different than banding. Now, we're in an early stage, and I'm not gonna give his results, but, but this is a different way to look at where do the ducks that get shot actually come from? And we're finding a big Canadian signature. And the problem with banding is that if you wanna know where a duck gets shot, you have to abandon ducks at that site. Yeah. So if we don't band any ringnecks in the west, we think all of our ringnecks in the east coast come from places where we do band in Maine and Newfoundland. But that's because we didn't band any in northern Saskatchewan. Well, it's the same for mallards, a heavily banded species, but if we don't have banding stations spread evenly, we can't get good results from banding. So Again, Schumer's looking yeah. at, at at stable isotopes, these isotopes of, of carbon or nitrogen or whatever you want to look at. And So does and he have his own, them. is he creating his own map yep. of the right. isotope distribution or range map? No, he's, he's basically using you know, we've known for some time how carbon changes when you go north, okay. when you go east and west. And it's not hugely accurate. It's not like having a GSM radio where we know within a few meters. Right. We know within, you know, a dozen or a hundred miles. Right. But that's good enough to right. know whether the duck came from Canada or did it breed in, in the northeast of the of the states so which are so two yeah, entirely two entirely different source areas, different source areas yeah. it's yeah. another project that's fine-tuning you know some of the assumptions that might have been wrong that we've used in the past yeah hmm. awesome okay so the last one we've been looking for this one for the last half an hour geolocators on pacific flyway ducks no that's another one of my projects i'm bringing with me and the field work's done um so geolocators are itty bitty tracking devices they weigh about a gram and we can also just simply attach them to a leg band with a zip tie so no backpacks with you know elastic wrapped around them or surgery where we have to knock them out dirt cheap yep yeah they're about 150 bucks a piece but the hard part is you got to get them back either from hunters or 
from recapture. So we put them out on wood ducks, mallards, canvas backs, and we're, we just submitted a canvas back paper that I think will help us uh, think about studying birds in the future. Um, you know, we're getting movements. You look at the maps, they're nearly just as nice as our GSM maps, except you can't zero in on what type of field it is. But for full annual cycle movements, I'd say it's very comparable. And what's also really neat, kind of a byproduct of it, is it, it records light. So you mount it on a leg band, and what happens to their leg when they're incubating on a nest? It goes dark. Mm -hmm. So all of a sudden we get precise data showing that they're incubating. And what's really neat with the canvas backs is for the ones that did survive the summer to be available to be shot, so they escaped the raccoon at the nest. Not all hens are that lucky. If they survive nesting season, every single one of our females tried to nest and nested long enough for 35 day period that their nest success appears to be 100% at that, you know, given that they survived. So it appears if they make it through nesting season, which probably 60%, oh, higher than that, 90% of canvasbacks do, 85, 90%, it appears they successfully nested as well. Is that true? I don't know, but the preliminary results are pretty encouraging and make you scratch your head like, how can this be absolute? I, I would have expected something halfway, but for every single one of them to nest and nest successfully makes me wonder how many biases there could be, you know, I'm not saying there are, could be out there from our nest monitoring efforts, you know, our scent trails or knocking down vegetation or we only find the ones that are as easy to find for the raccoons too mm -hmm. right. you know we're humans we we find the easy stuff first usually so so a so a cheap and passive way of collecting just a whole pile of data well yep. it's been really fun too the hunters really get into it because they they know i'm i have my phone number on them and they call me and so I answer any phone number. I mean, I'm horrible with telemarketers because I'm hoping it's going to be another geolocator guy calling. And they get really excited that they get to help it. And I've got a whole box full of new ones. I'm like, guys, I made those completely by hand. I can get you one tomorrow with a paid return envelope. And they've been awesome. And then, this was about a month ago, I had two guys in Idaho, didn't even know each other, photographers, not fighting, but taking the same pictures of the same canvas back with one of these tracking devices on and they actually had such good photographs that they could read my phone number off the bands. That was pretty fun. That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. Well guys, I think you did a, a great job walking through all of our research projects. Frank and Chris talking about the history of Delta and some of the different research perspectives. So I want to thank you guys for, for joining the, the podcast today good fun um, yeah, yeah it was pretty Love darn good so stuff, yeah, yeah absolutely so yeah. we tried to shoot for those watching this on video we tried to add some scenery but i think the wind is going to chase us off here and i think just to throw a little humor in here it's always windy in north dakota so i think it's kind of funny when the wind bl doesn't blow a lot of people in north dakota kind of stand sideways so we're used to kind of leaning into the wind so we're gonna we're gonna end up here today but i hope you enjoyed the podcast if you haven't um, heard our podcast in the past this is number three jump onto our website jump onto youtube however you consume your podcast download our podcast that way we also have a series of videos that are out there there's going to be more to come our next podcast is going to be profiling 
the decline of hunter numbers. We, we're going to focus in on waterfowl hunters, and then we're going to talk about hunter three, which is we talked about it before. It's Delta's contribution to increasing hunting participation, hunter recruitment. Nested inside there is Defend the Hunt, and that's our hunting advocacy work. So with that, uh, thank you for your time, and hope you enjoyed the podcast. If you ever want to reach out, you have questions for Frank or Chris or myself, just jump on our website, and our contact information is there. So thanks a lot. Good stuff.